The Old Testament text is the 90th Psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under the sun. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let, a work of your, uh, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that you will uh, bless us. May the words of, our, of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Do you have a favorite part of the Bible, maybe a favorite book? Uh, when I uh, was a young man, I favored the epistles uh, of Paul. In fact, that's all I wanted to read. That's all I wanted to think about. There was something about the abstract and challenging theology that the Apostle Paul is known for that just drew me in. And I think it, it's not so unusual. I think a lot of young men are that way. They, uh, they like the propositional truth that Paul proclaims, and uh, they like to see how everything fits together rationally, coherently. And, of course, there's something that is required from anyone who understands what Paul is talking about. But I remember when I was studying for the ministry, I was uh, an undergraduate, and I took a class entitled Wisdom Literature. Now, wisdom literature in Scripture is referring to Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and so forth. But obviously the Psalms uh, make up a great body of that you know, body of literature. And I wasn't all that interested. It's, it was sort of like, you know, let's get to the serious stuff. The Apostle Paul, that's what I want. I, had, I was a little more, I guess, interested in the Gospels. I mean, yeah, obviously the Gospels are important. I liked Paul, though. I wanted just Paul all the time, 24-7. That's it. And uh, 
Over the years, my appraisal of things has changed. I still love Paul. I mean, we should love every part of the Bible. But my affection for the Psalms, for, the, for Proverbs, for Ecclesiastes, has grown immensely. And uh, it's important, though, to think about how we approach, say, the Psalms and what makes them different than, say, the things that Paul wrote to help us understand how to interpret and apply and receive and benefit from the Psalms, because they are different. One of the things to remember when you're thinking about, say, the Psalms is we're talking essentially about verse, right? I mean, these are things that were sung. These, are, these were, you know, intended for uh, use in a congregation uh, or as people approached Jerusalem, Psalms of Ascent. Uh, there were Psalms that have a kind of personal character, you know, that obviously uh, are, you know, in some sense a reflection of a particular person's spiritual crisis. But generally speaking, we're talking about, you know, stuff that was to be, to be sung by everybody. That's an important thing to keep in mind because when it comes to verse versus prose, there are kind of different rules of thumb to keep in mind as you try to understand and read and receive and benefit from, say, a psalm as opposed to, say, uh, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Now, what I'm getting at is that when it comes to Scripture, there are certain truths that God communicates to us that are best communicated to us through verse, poetically. And there's a sense in which there are things that can only be said poetically and in this way. It's not as though God just, you know, decided that, well, I'll mix it up for them. I'll give them some propositions over here, and I'll give them some history over here, and just to keep it interesting. That's not what is going on. There are certain truths that are understand, understood best through an historical account. There are other truths that are understood best through propositions. This is the way it is. And then there are truths that are best understood poetically. And that's what I intend to talk to you about today, a truth that's best understood poetically. And the question that this truth is an answer to is the question, how big is God? How big is God? Now, moms probably, you know, across the congregation right now are thinking about that little song that they teach their kids, right? You know, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Now, that's going to kind of stick with you all through the day. You can thank me later. But uh, this psalm is like that, but with a lot more, I guess, power than that song. What we see in this uh, passage of Scripture is that God is sublime ontologically sublime. So there's a $10 word for you. So the word ontological uh, comes from the Greek word ontos, which just simply means to be. In other words, this is just the way God is. So let's uh, take a look at some scripture here to help us understand just what we're talking about when we're talking about God. Lord, beginning at verse (coughs) 1, pardon me, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. 
God is sublime, outsized. Now, sometimes people use the word sublime as a synonym for beautiful. That's actually a misunderstanding or a misuse of the term. Uh, the term sublime was presented and defended by a fellow by the name of Edmund Burke in a book. Uh, if I remember correctly, the title actually contrasted beauty with the sublime. What did he mean when he talked about uh, sublimity? Well, let me give you a passage from the book, and I think you'll get a sense of what, it's, what, what he's addressing. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite ideas of danger, that is to say, whatever uh, is in any sort terrible or is conversant about terrible objects or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that cleared things up uh, about as much as like mud. (laughs) What is he getting at? Well, think about it this way. The Hudson River School of Art. Have you ever seen those massive paintings in, say, an art gallery where paintings from, say, the 19th century are on display? And these paintings are just like wall-sized. And they depict a huge landscape. And on that landscape, very often, there are tiny little figures, itsy-bitsy figures of people say, by a campsite or near the water or in a raft. And what is conveyed with that image is that human beings are very small and the world that they dwell in is very, very big. Now, if you've ever been to the Niagara Falls uh, in upstate New York near Buffalo, um, one of the things you can do is actually get in a boat that will take you right up to the falls, dangerously close. I mean, so close that if you're 10 feet closer to the falls, you're dead. And people pay money for this. They want to feel that power, but at a safe distance. But they want to experience something that gives them a sense that, wow, this is big and I'm not. There's a sense in which uh, we really long to find our place in in the order of things And when it comes to power and might and majesty, the Niagara Falls has nothing on God. God is sublime. And compared to him, we are, well, this is what the psalm is about. We're told that uh, when it comes to the sort of span of time, God fills it all. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the scale is eternity. Now, that means that everything that we see, God was here before that. And after everything is gone, God will be here yet. In terms of scale, in terms of before and after, well, he puts it this way. It's put this way. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you were God. And then when it applies to you and me, there's going to be a world that God still orders and rules after we are gone. I know that's a disconcerting thought. In fact, it's almost an impossible thought to actually appreciate. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was an entrepreneur. He built a multimillion dollar high-tech firm. And uh, 
One day, uh, someone who was on his board wanted to impress upon him just how insignificant he was. So he took a, a bucket of water and he put his hand in it and then removed his hand. And he was asked, do you see a hole? He said, no. Well, we can live without you too. <laughs> but anyway, so this is the way things are. The world will continue after you and I are gone. And the psalmist wants to bring that across to us, and he does that in a number of ways. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. We pass away. We fly away. We're here for a time. But God is constantly present. God is God. And we are not. God is also morally sublime. And that's another thing that this psalm uh, conveys to us. He's morally sublime in the sense that he's holy. God is holy. This is impressed upon us by these references to his anger and his wrath. You see that? Take a look at verse 7 and then again at... uh, Verse uh, 9 and then verse 11. Verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Um, And then verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Now, if that doesn't make you feel insubstantial, I don't know what would. (laughs) Then verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? These references to God's wrath are just simply the case. I think a lot of folks try to downplay this uh, truth simply because it's not pleasant to consider. But it's not cruelty that we're talking about here. We're talking about reality, and it's simply a fact, and there's evidence for God's wrath. And what is that evidence? Well, we're told that uh, it's our expiration. (laughs) It's the fact that we die that's evidence of God's wrath. And we are under a curse. And furthermore, our lives not only come to an end, they're short and they're full of trouble in the meantime. We toil and labor. And, uh, well, let me, let me read it to you. It's verse, verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. One of the things that's important to note, particularly in a world uh, like ours where we're very comfortable and it seems as though we've got very fat margins for error, uh, God doesn't grade on a scale. The standard is absolute. And the standard is something that we need to consider and reflect on. What is the standard? If God doesn't grade on a scale, if he doesn't give us points for effort and sincerity, what's the standard? The standard is himself. That's the standard. He is the light. And that light brings to light some things that we wish it didn't. And by the way, that's one of the things that's noted here. We are uh, subject to his examination. We see that in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's not as though the Lord just suddenly, you know, after having been around for a long time, turn on, turns on the light. The Lord is the light. 
This is why we flee from him. Because when we find ourselves in his presence, we become conscious of our shortcomings, our sins, and uh, our offenses. And because that's the case, and since we just don't want to think about that stuff, we flee. So the behavior of Adam and Eve in uh, chapters, uh, you know, two and three, chapter three particularly of Genesis, this is not, say, exceptional behavior. This is pretty much standard behavior. We are chips off the old block. (laughs) We behave just like them every day. We blame other people for our problems, for our faults and our sins. And then when we can't do that any longer, we run and we hide. This is the way things work in our world. This is what people do. But there's no escaping the curse. Uh, never, even though we, we would rather it not be the case that we live under God's wrath, it just simply is true. So in light of this, how then should we live? We're told this at the end of the psalm with a couple of very, I think, salient and uh, worthwhile things to reflect on. The first is that in verse 12, we're told we should number our days. See that? So teach us to number our days. Why? Why should we number our days? that we may get a heart of wisdom. There's something about the awareness of our mortality and the fact that we're accountable and that the reason we are mortal is because we're being held accountable that is sobering and a source of genuine insight into the nature of things and a source of wisdom. By the way, this is something that it's not exclusively noted in the Bible or ex- exclusive to the Bible when it comes to this insight. Remember the phrase memento mori? Remember you will die. One of the things that conquerors in the Roman Empire would be reminded of when they came home and, and, they, and when they led their captives uh, from the conquest that they had uh, returned from Uh, to the great celebration of the Roman people is uh, this very thing. There would be a slave that would uh, stand next to the conqueror, be someone like Caesar or Titus, and all the while, as the crowd cheered, the slave was told, remind him, you will die. You will die. You're just a man. You will die. Now, that's something that could like, ruin your parade, I, you know, I would imagine. <laughs> this constant reminder that it's all going to come to an end, not just that day, but your life as well. Socrates, of all people, said, philosophy is nothing but remembering that you will die and preparing for that day. That's philosophy. That's what makes you wise. And because of that, you learn to value your days. What's more valuable, a limited resource or unlimited resources? The limited resource. So the reason why you value every day is because once that day is gone, it's gone. So learn to number your days and become wise. And in order to do this, you need help. This is not something you can kind of, you know, through just simple willpower, kind of work yourself up to do. We're told here in this passage in verse 12 that we need God to teach us. So teach us to number our days addressing God, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, 
it doesn't end there. Another thing that we learn is that satisfaction is possible, that there is a kind of blessing that we can know even, even in this world, even though we face a short sort of span of time that we can enjoy in this world, we can enjoy that life. And we see that in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So the Lord can help us number our days, but the Lord can also help us enjoy those days as well. He can make us glad. We see that in verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Isn't that a marvelous way of putting it? For as many days as you have afflicted us, make us glad. And for as many years as we've seen evil. So the Lord can console us and compensate us, and we ought to look to him for that. And the way that he can console us and comfort us is through his works. We see that in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So the God who brought the world that we live in into existence out of nothing, who existed before anything was made, that same God, that same power that is on display in the world that we see all around us is a power that we can have working for us in our lives if God is favoring us. This is why, essentially, it's impossible for us to really do the kind of accounting that some people would like to do when it comes to, like, your actions. There's a school of thought in philosophy called consequentialism. It's basically a sub, sort of a subset under the, under the title uh, utilitarianism. But consequentialism is essentially the belief that, uh, or the conviction or the practice of trying to determine the right or wrong of any given action based on the foreseeable outcomes. You know something, when God is in the mix, you have no clue. Something that might seem like suicidal can be the means by which God blesses you. And something that seems like a sure thing can be the thing that kills you. It's wise to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And his favor can make bad news good news and good news bad news if he doesn't favor you. You see what I'm saying? So just do what's right. Don't try to take matters into your own hands and sort of, sort of measure it out in ways that make sense to you. Just do what's right and let the Lord take care of the rest. And when God favors you, even bad news can be good news. And then the way this psalm ends is just beautiful. Anybody, have you ever wondered, what's the meaning of my life? The things I do don't seem to amount to anything. Well, that particular concern is universal and is addressed in this last verse. Did you notice that? Let the favor of the Lord God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know, that doesn't mean necessarily that you'll be remembered if God establishes the work of your hands. It just means that the work of your hands has enjoyed God's favor and is fruitful, even if you're forgotten. That's important to keep in mind. But isn't it significant to have something kind of live on after you? Doesn't it give your life a sense of meaning and purpose and value to know that God has favored me and things that he has blessed in my life are going to lead to the blessing of other people and even 
you know, the building up of God's church, and maybe even uh, bring about things that are eternally beautiful and wonderful. That's, that's enough to get you up in the morning. It's enough to help you kind of press on when it comes to this toil that's being talked about here. Establish the work of my hands. It's not a, it's not a selfish prayer. It's a prayer that we all need to pray on an ongoing basis. Lord, establish the work of my hands. As a mom, pray for that. As I'm working with these little children that are getting on my nerves, Lord, you know, bless the work of my hands. As a man who's bringing home the resources for his family, think about it in those terms as well. You know, Lord, bless the work of my hands in my family, but even in my community, at my place of employment. This is something we can, we can long for and pray about because, after all, this is a prayer. This is a prayer that we're supposed to pray. In other words, when we pray the Psalms and sing the Psalms, this is something that should characterize our lives. We can pray that our lives will make a difference. A difference in a way that only can be made when God favors them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you really are beyond our ability to comprehend. And only poetically we can even approach the greatness that we know uh, characterizes just your very being. We pray, Lord, though, that in the light of your presence that we will know your favor, that we will uh, enjoy the forgiveness of our sins, but also the work of your Spirit in our lives as we endeavor to live for you in a way that glorifies you. We pray, Lord, that you will that you will uh, establish the work of our hands in this church, in our homes, in our communities, uh, to the glory of God, through Jesus Christ. Amen.